Hello, and welcome to the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. I'm Shane Phillips, and I run the housing initiative for the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. And I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Mike Lenz, Associate Faculty Director for the Lewis Center. This podcast is about making housing research accessible to everyone. And we do that by talking to the researchers themselves. We want to know not just what the latest research tells us about the problems we face, but what it says about how we address them. I think I speak for both of us when I say that research isn't everything, that knowledge alone won't solve all of our housing challenges, but it certainly helps and there is so, so much to learn. A lot of this work is hidden behind journal paywalls and insular academic speak, so our goal is to bring this work to light and share it with all of you. joined today by Pavo Mankinen, co-author with our colleague Mike Manville on an article titled Opposition to Development or Opposition to Developers, Experimental Evidence on Attitudes Toward New Housing. We're going to start off with a little background, Pavo. Um, what brought you to the study of housing policy? I know you're generally focused on housing production, af- approval processes, that kind of thing. So why housing and why that specific element of housing? Hey, Shane, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. It seems quite formal considering we talk frequently (laughs) um, and we just got a research grant together to study affirmatively furthering fair housing, which is very exciting. It's it's an interesting pair of questions. I guess the the origin story, uh, I actually owe credit to Vineet Mukija, our colleague at UCLA Urban Planning. I was his research assistant when I was a master's student in public policy, and we worked on informal housing and like a federal program in the US to improve rural communities um, in California. So that kind of sparked my interest originally in informality and informal housing. And actually, most of my work has been on housing in Mexico, especially around like the quote unquote social housing program. It's like a mortgage finance program run by the federal government. Um, And I have done a lot of research as well on public housing in Hong Kong. Um, So it's, it's funny that you asked the second half of this kind of why do I spend so much time focusing on zoning reform? Because I think probably in, if, if anyone has ever seen my work in Southern California, it would be the zoning reform stuff, but uh, that's only one of the things I do. But I do think it's important. Um, I think that, you know, as, as our project on AFFH speaks to and this other thing uh, we've been talking about in terms of how to get affordable housing in single family neighborhoods through like a missing middle with a subsidized unit in the, in the five plex, right? I think zoning reform is like an important piece to the increasing affordability generally and increasing the number of affordable housing units kind of that exist. So, you know, that's, that's why it has become such a focus and the attention in, you know, at the state level in California to actually doing something, something about it, I think is, is also one of the reasons that I've been working on it more lately. And I should probably mention that we're joined by Mike Lenz as well. Uh, Mike, do you want to just introduce yourself here? Oh, sure, Shane. Um, so Mike, <laughs> Mike Lenz, I'm an associate professor of urban planning and public policy at UCLA, uh, like Pavo, and I am the associate faculty director of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, which brings us this podcast. Um, I had a follow-up question for, for Pavo. So you mentioned 
kind of your your origin story in housing, but there's a lot of different ways that you can impact housing affordability or housing access. Um, we have you know a, a large army around the world of people who advocate on the behalf of people who don't have affordable and safe housing. Um, and we have researchers and we have everything in between. Like what made you think that research was the way to have an, an impact question. in this world? And like, you know, how, how do you think imp- you know, research like ours can have th- that kind of impact? That's a, that's a very good question, Mike. And I want to hear your answer too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, so I, I, when I did my master's in public policy, my plan was definitely not to do research. My plan was to take action in the world and change things. Um, but throughout that program and through my internship, I actually did an internship at the World Bank just to see how evil it was. And uh, I saw that research had a big impact on the way they did things and the way they structured policies. So that was kind of how I started understanding the importance of research and ideas in shaping uh, policy outcomes. And also, I mean, just, you know, kind of selfishly, I really love doing research and the flexibility and independence it gives. It gives me in terms of setting out what I get to do with my time. So a little bit of uh, recognizing its ability to impact the world and really enjoying it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, that sounds more deliberate than what I remember. I was kind of, <laughs> I, I was kind of naive, um, you know, also, you know, as a master's student thinking like, hey, if we just like found the right data and we did the right study, we can find what works and then the world would do what works. Mm-hmm. And, and, of, and of course, like, you know, even the, even the finding out what works part is incredibly hard. And, you know, in, in most major societies, um, taking the what works and translating it into political action is uh, a very, very different thing. So, um, you know, that was, that was kind of what got me on that path. I think. Yeah, I think it takes, takes some of us a while to realize. Meanwhile, I just never saw the appeal at all. So I just do. <laughs> but we pulled you but into here you are. Yeah. No PhD for me. Anyway. Um, you're at a university. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Let's talk about the paper a little bit. Um, the study that you did, it was a survey looking at how different messages about housing affected people's support or opposition to a development proposal in their neighborhood. And, you know, if I could summarize it in one sentence, I would say, the, the like big finding for me is that people dislike developers even more than they dislike traffic. Can you, but can you give us like a little more detail? We're going to get into the real details here going forward, but just like a, a little more detailed summary than that. Sure. Yeah, no. And especially in LA County, that was a big surprise to us as well. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the basic idea was just to see which kinds of arguments against a housing project near you would make you more likely to oppose it. Um, and so we, the kind of the innovation was we randomly assigned respondents uh, to the survey into five different groups. One of them, a control group, did saw no argument against a hypothetical housing project on their block. The other four groups saw different kind of neighborhood concerns over what that project might do. And so we looked at kind of parking and traffic as one frame, strain the local public services like the parks will be crowded kind of as another frame. Um, ruin the neighborhood character as another frame, and then the developer will make a lot of money uh, because they got a variance as, as the fourth frame. 
Yeah, and so, I mean, it, it was striking to us how much the developer profit frame motivated more opposition uh, to the hypothetical project. I mean, it was slightly more than the neighborhood character one. And both the neighborhood character and the developer frame were, were significantly more than the, the strain on parking. Sorry, the strain on services and the parking frame. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found interesting about this was, you know, usually I think the issues we focus on when we talk about opposition to housing are like the direct visible things that people will usually admit to, like concerns about traffic congestion, aesthetics, property values, stuff like that, or things they often won't admit to, like prejudice against different racial or ethnic groups or poor people. Um, These are ultimately about impacts of the housing itself or of the people who will live in the housing. Uh, And this, in this, you're looking at the people who build it and the process by which they build it. So as you put it, neighbors may oppose not just the product of housing, but its producer and the process the producer uses. So have we just not given enough thought to the role of producers and processes in the past? Like what, what motivated this question specifically? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that is, that is the, the right distinction, like things that will directly affect your life and things that actually won't affect your life, but you find reprehensible and make you mad. Um, I got to say, we, we got to give credit to uh, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation um, to, <laughs> to a great extent, because this work was in part motivated by the Measure S campaign in LA and the way that they used evil developers as a trope uh, kind of in their opposition to, to large buildings being being built in the city. Um, and so to, that really, to interject, the yeah. Measure S campaign was, I believe, uh, something that LA voters voted on in November 2016. I yeah, think. it was. I think it was March 2017. It was after Measure JJJ, which was in the in 2016. Okay. Yeah, it got yeah. pushed back to the. Next. Yeah. Right, and and so that would that would have um, really put a stop to any development that required a. Um, you know, modification or variance of existing zoning, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. which at the time was like the majority of housing production. So it would have right. had a really big impact for sure. Right. Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, opposition to housing was something that kind of I had been thinking about and studying for a while. But this campaign and the prevalence of this evil developer trope was why we included it. And it wasn't the focus of the survey. Init- I mean, it's the title of the paper in the end, but it wasn't the focus of the survey. I was because we weren't ex- expecting it to be such a big, uh, as provocative of a frame as, as it turned out to be. You open the paper saying that most research on opposition to new housing focuses on low-income housing, um, affordable housing, and that that opposition to market rate housing is, is understudied. What changed? Like, why, why is this a thing now? Like, why, wasn't, why weren't people studying market rate housing and people's responses to it 10, 20, 30 years ago? Yeah, I mean, that's, it is a good question. I don't know why precisely. Um, I mean, economists have been focused on measuring the impacts of regulations for a while on housing markets. Um, I was thinking maybe, you know, planners, planning scholarship maybe has been less, you know, maybe resistant to the question of community, questioning community concerns, but I'm not, I don't really have a a great answer. Um, I mean, I think it is also because we used to build a lot more market rate housing in the US and so it wasn't necessarily as big of an issue kind of in terms of uh, housing affordability as it has become over the last couple decades. Right, and it's just gotten so expensive too, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Like the, the gap between, I think, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I imagine the gap between a new market rate unit today and a low-income unit is a lot larger than it was, you know, in 2000 or 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if I, to offer some of my thoughts, I mean, the the renter affordability crisis, or, or sorry, the, the, the cost of housing for renters as a proportion of their income, you know, that is steadily risen for many decades. And alongside that, you know, some would say as a result of, um, or, or some would say one cause is that over that same time period, a lot of cities have become kind of more exclusionary, you know, and so of course, there's a lot to pull apart there in terms of causality, but, you know, those two trends certainly have, I think, hit a fever pitch mm-hmm. in our examination of the more acute housing crises that occur in the really high cost places. Yeah. No, and I think, you know, there are a number of topics that are just not heavily studied, even though they're important. Um, I mean, like, so Shoup is famous for putting parking on the map as a, as a topic of study that people just hadn't realized its importance. And I mean, or like in the housing world, I think Matt Desmond obviously put evictions and landlordism on the map in a way that, and now there's going to be a lot of studies of that. And I think his, in his book, I love that footnote that's like, you know, the volume of papers on the details of the structure of voucher systems compared to the study of other aspects of rental housing. Um, you know, it's like this huge, hugely outweighs it. And, you know, there's just things that we haven't focused on for whatever reason that, that we probably should. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the details of this paper. And I think I can just start off by actually reading some of the, the questions and, and messages that were given to uh, the survey takers, just as a starting point. The control group for this, are these people who actually lived in predominantly single family neighborhoods or were they just to, a, to treat themselves, pretend as though they were? Oh yeah, no, so what we did is we asked people what was the kind of predominant building okay. form okay. in their neighborhood. And then depending on what they answered, we had kind of three groups. If they were living in a mostly single family neighborhood, the proposed, the hypothetical project was like, I forgot, a sixplex or something, you know, like a three-story apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were living in a kind of mid-density neighborhood, it was a 10-story apartment building. And if they were living in a high-density neighborhood, it was, a, it was a skyscraper. So just to, so it would be bigger than what's there now, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The question to people living in a predominantly single-family neighborhood was, suppose a developer proposes to build a three-story apartment building on your block the proposed building, which will contain 21 bedroom and studio units, is designed by Camarillo architects who have developed multifamily residential projects across Southern California for decades. Early renderings show a building with tasteful contemporary architecture and ecologically sensitive landscaping. Some advantages of this development are clear. Los Angeles badly needs more housing and city planners hope that new construction will help make rents more affordable. And so that's for people living in predominantly single family neighborhoods. I, I gotta say, maybe the, the, the name of the made up architect and the ecologically <laughs> sensitive landscaping is probably my favorite part of this paper. I think, yeah, each, I think for each of these, you gave kind of just made up architect names, but they're just yeah, kind yeah. of like but Southern like very, California, I mean, Spanish names. Yeah, I could work for uh, urban. <laughs> and so for, uh, for people living in predominantly multifamily neighborhoods, the building size is increased to 
10 stories and 90 units, but the message right. is otherwise the same. And I guess for like even higher density neighborhoods, you give like a high rise right. as the proposal. Um, but as you say, it's always a little bit bigger than what's in the neighborhood currently. And mm-hmm. as you said, um, some survey takers were just given that message and you know, you asked about their feelings on it. And then for others, you gave them an opposition message, one of several. And just for example, the one on cars and traffic says, however, some of your neighbors oppose this project. They worry that it will lead to increased traffic in the neighborhood and make street parking harder to find. Traffic and parking are always sources of concern to Angelinos, and there is reason to think that new housing does mean more cars. And there are other opposing messages on neighborhood character, strain in local services, and the last one about developers. And that developer one says, however, some of your neighbors oppose this project. They point out that the project's developers obtained a special permit from the city, which lets them build at a higher density than zoning would normally allow. The developer stands to make large profits as a result. Your neighbors argue that the city planning department should not be in the business of making developers rich. So really laying it on there. (laughs) So as you kind of hinted at, um, the biggest change was actually came when people were told about the developer gaining large profits from the development. It was a, a 20 point swing. So the control group that didn't receive an opposing message they supported this project in their neighborhood. Um, 53% supported it, 28% opposed it. After hearing about the developer uh, making profits and getting this variance, support fell by 20 points to 33%, um, and opposition rose 20 points to 48. So I guess like at a, at a very high level, like what do we do with that finding? Uh, <laughs> uh, even, I mean, even if developers don't hit their target, uh, investment returns, like that instead of making 8% or 10%, they make 2% and it's just a big failure. Um, the average person is still going to interpret that as like a big profit because 2% returns on like a 10 or $50 million development is a lot of money. So like, where do we go from here? I guess. Um, yeah, no, it's a striking, uh, result. And I think, (laughs) you know, you might've noticed in, in reading that, that we mistakenly had a double barreled, uh, argument against the project in there, right? So there's like the special permit and then the profits. So that's definitely something we want to we want to redo this study. I mean, I hope this podcast attracts some funding for a follow-up survey because, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't anticipate it having as big of an, like being the focus of the paper in the way that it became. Um, and because of the Measure S campaign and the way it was structured, and I mean, because of LA politics and the way it was structured, um, in terms of so many projects requiring variances or zoning amend, you know, amendments, you know, this became a big part of what, what we're interested in studying. But yeah, so uh, what do we do with it? Well, I mean, we got to worry about those things separately, right? So the perception and actual corruption in the housing development process is a big problem. Um, but also kind of there's this kind of repugnant market element to the housing development process. Uh, system, we think, right? So, you know, this idea where profiting off human needs, profiting off organ transplants kind of are, are things that people perceive as immoral. And I think there's an element of that with housing. And I think it gets worse or gets more acute when housing is so unaffordable and there's so much homelessness in the city, right? Then housing as a basic, like the basic need element of housing becomes much more mm-hmm. salient in people's minds. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about reforming the, the permitting entitlement process to make it less special for certain developers um, is, is extremely important. 
but the the other part, the repugnant markets part, I, I don't know what kind of any policy uh, recommendations would come from that. Right. Like there's there's more we can do on the the special treatment side of things probably than the developer profit. Right. Do you think? I mean, if you had to guess, and and you know, pending a lovely person coming in and funding this next study, uh, do you have a guess at which of these actually changes people's views more? No, I, I, I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't I, even we, guess. We need to do more research on it. Fair, <laughs> fair. So the developer. I mean, well, it. I'll just just on that, I'll say. I mean, they are connected too, right? So I think you know one of the big arguments that we've been making uh, to the to the city council recently. I know there's a motion, a couple motions about reforming uh, the permitting process, just because of the corruption scandals in the city of LA. You know. To some extent, the process creates the excess profits, right? So the fact that if you do get a variance or you can get an amendment to the zoning, then you're going to make way more money than than somebody that can't get that, right? So it creates the impetus for more corruption, and it benefits those developers that are really good at corruption, right? Or really good at <laughs> getting getting that special permit, right? So to some extent, I mean, that's kind of some of the big picture. You know, it's maybe making more out of these findings than we when we should according to the rules of academia but uh i think to some extent you know we have created a city planning process that makes people dislike it more than they would otherwise i mean it reminds me almost of like the republican strategy of like making government dysfunctional and then saying look government's dysfunctional um <laughs> so right we've created this process where every multifamily building needs approval by elected officials and then they get a lot of flack about it when they approve buildings and there's all this kind of negotiation behind closed doors with developers, et cetera. And then of course people are gonna be mad about that, right? Yeah. Right, And but you know, these findings, you know, you're being a little bit modest. I mean, these, these findings come well before, or this, this experiment comes well before um, we see, you know, council member Kuizar have you know these very explicit charges of corruption brought to him after extensive FBI investigations? Um, you know, council, former council member Englander resigning, and it turns out was you know receiving suitcases full of cash and has pled guilty to various uh, things associated with that. Excuse me, I think it was just a paper bag. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So, I could be so wrong. The, I could be wrong. Right. The, the, developers, <laughs> the developers weren't that fancy. They didn't have that much money. They didn't have anything really to carry it in that was all that um, sophisticated. So, you know, there, there could be reason to believe that, um, you know, that developers and council members in this city, at least, have, are, are kind of bringing their, or, or they're attaching themselves to each other's bad names, perhaps. Um, but you know, the, I guess one thing that, that comes to mind for me thinking about this at the stage is, is like, what do people think developers are, you know, is there a difference? Is there a difference between what developers do and function as and what people perceive? And, and then, you know, I know Pablo that like, this is not the central focus of, of this study for sure, but like, is there a disconnect between what developers are and do? And, and then, of course, developers are a diverse group. You know, there's, 
you know, right. not all developers are the same size or massively profitable. Those, there's those mom and pops. Uh, well, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> we only use that with landlords. But yeah, no, I think that's that's the point. That's that's a good point. And, you know, it's something that I've been talking about, at least with council members in the city of Culver City, about why why aren't cities more proactive about what they want in terms of housing production, right? So our system currently is the developer has to have, have a parcel, have an idea, come to the city and present it to the city and the city can cut it back and adjust it and nitpick and may, may or may not approve it. Instead, I feel like the way we would have a housing system where housing was getting produced at a pace that people need it would be the city should say, here's a bunch of land on which we want housing to be built. It should have these parameters more or less. Please go build it for us. Kind of like we don't we don't hate car producers, maybe SUV producers, but most car like most most producers of products, people don't hate intrinsically. And I think it's just this kind of, you know, there's this element of uh, you don't want your neighborhood to change can't get around that but I think part of the the kind of developer city nexus um, issue is the way it's the way the negotiation is set up mm, that makes a lot of sense right and you know maybe worth emphasizing that earlier Pavo said you know use the word corruption and there's real corruption happening here in the city of Los Angeles like very clearly but most of these approvals like this is how you get housing approved and it gives that appearance of corruption whether it exists or not right but you know getting that zone change that variance or what have you especially prior to the transit oriented communities program here that was approved several years ago as i said that was the majority of housing being produced and like you had to go through that process and it looked terrible Mm -hmm. um but if you couldn't get that zone change you basically couldn't build anything meaningful Mm -hmm. you might have a site that's like still zoned for manufacturing even though it's been vacant for decades or so literally just for parking. And so this is like a, a shift away from that is what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, even in cities with less Byzantine zoning codes than the city of LA, there is always this element of kind of like a pre, before the developer even submits any paperwork to the city, they kind of have some meetings and float some ideas, right? And like, ultimately they need the city council to, to, to vote on something and they know that vote's going to be contentious. So they're kind of warming them up before even a formal process starts. And so, yeah, I mean, it is this, it is this, uh, there's an inevitable perception of, of backroom dealage, at least, if not corruption. So opposition to developers, um, you know, that was kind of the surprise finding here. It's the main takeaway of the paper. But I was actually surprised that of the other opposing messages, neighborhood character was the next most effective. Again, the other two were traffic and parking and then strain on services. And we hear people talk about neighborhood character all the time and how, you know, allowing duplexes in your neighborhood will destroy neighborhood character or, you know, turn it into Dubai or whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No reference there. So there's there's this connection I think is is not really made explicitly very often. There's this implied connection that like by protecting the built environment, we are protecting the people who live there as well and like maintaining whatever that mix of people is. And that means different things in like a rich white community than a poor community of color, of course. Um, but like what what do people mean, do you think, when they're talking about neighborhood character? And I think we see this in both rich and poor where it's like, Los Angeles over the past several years has created all these new zones to prevent 
McMansions, like tearing down a single family home and building a bigger one. Um, so it's, it's not just like keeping poor people out of your neighborhood. There's also like pretty rich neighborhoods where it seems like they don't want even richer people in their neighborhood either. It's like, right. just keep just everything the, the same. Little, everyone is a little bit like me, but slightly richer maybe. No. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I, I thought it would be the most, um, provocative frame that we use just because it is so vague. I mean, I realize in rereading the, the way we set it up, we were a little bit specific on the buildings, right? So we said it's going to be out of, uh, out of context, this new building. Like the concern was that it was going to ruin the neighborhood character because it was going to be out of context. If I could do it again, um, I would just say neighbors are concerned that it'll ruin neighborhood character, period. I wanted to leave it vague just because it means so many things. It, you know, it means different things to different people. And it even encompasses, I mean, the reason I think it's bigger than traffic or the strain on services is because it includes traffic and strain on services, mm. right? So part of the neighborhood character is kind of the existing traffic and parking conditions. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people think about it in different ways. You know, I think some neighbors are more concerned about the buildings being different and like don't mind that prices are going up, especially people that own housing are happy that prices are going up um, as long as the as long as the conditions don't change. Uh, whereas other people are more concerned about kind of who's living in their neighborhood. Right. I mean, to follow up on that last piece, Pavo, I mean, you know, the the more academic theories and, you know, this is supported by plenty of, of empirical study suggests that, you know, who really influences these decisions over development in, in most American cities in particular and more specifically in, in more suburban areas, um, are homeowners, right, that, that have so much of their household wealth tied up in their, the property that they own. And so they're fiercely protective of property values or any, you know, they're fiercely kind of oppositional to anything that might impact their property values, right? Um, yeah. And so they're, you know, they, they don't want lots of competition over amenities if it's a good school or if it's a local park. And there's also, I, I guess there's this neighborhood character sense that having multifamily near you is just kind of a bad, ugly thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how much do you feel like you saw that come out in your study? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it would be nice to know kind of how the single family neighborhoods differed from the more kind of already slightly dense neighborhoods in this sense. Um, one of the drawbacks of the way we did the study is that the sample of respondents wasn't randomly drawn from the population of LA County, right? So we used a company that has a, a panel of survey contestants, contestants, respondents, that's a, that's a Spanishism. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was a balanced sample for the most part, which means kind of in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, income, kind of it more or less mapped onto the, the population of LA County, but it wasn't randomly drawn. So we can't make inferences about kind of how single family neighborhoods answer these kinds of people in single family neighborhoods right. answer these questions different. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think it is, it is different um, and it, it would be great to have like an actual random sample to, to do this work with because you can imagine that single family homeowners are extremely different than, than renters in some of these responses. I mean, I think also with the neighborhood character thing, I mean, it would be, I would love to partner with a psychologist or something to study kind of how 
people's you know because there's this like whole american myth of white supremacist single family picket fencery and like kind of how many how much those myths drive some of this neighborhood character mentality versus like raw risk loss you know loss aversion risk like maybe my property value will go down i mean that is something we didn't have a frame on like neighbors are concerned that prices will go down in this neighborhood that would be another frame to include um in a, in a follow-up study because kind of dis- disentangling like changes in what the neighborhood looks like who lives there and then just some kind of raw financial thing would be interesting and that's something you'd really want to have a breakdown between renters and, and homeowners because right. presumably you're gonna have a big difference where like homeowners want prices to go up renters yep. want them to go down yep right and that and that's exactly right with the this this phrasing of neighborhood character it's it's so ubiquitous in in these discussions um at the neighborhood level on development and yet it has to mean so many different things to so many different people and you you do worry that there's a lot of disingenuous use of that phrase as well right um you know as as we've talked i think shane brought up several minutes ago is like there's the buildings changing there's the people changing and so like that could be covered in both neighbor in neighborhood character and be a softer way of expressing opposition to certain people right and, and so like how do you you know pulling that out i i agree you know almost requires uh <laughs> a behavioral economist or a psychologist or something uh right, right. somebody like that yeah no and i think the the i think it's something people don't think about probably that much but this point about mm. preserving the buildings almost means the people will be different mm. um i mean especially you know in in affluent single family neighborhoods where like the there's a lot of housing development meaning bungalows are being torn down and mansions are going in, instead right so like keeping the restrictions on far and units per acre or whatever means that uh the uh the neighborhood looks similar but the people are much richer that are able to move in right and so i think people when they're when they're presented with it that way it might in, i have seen it kind of make people think twice about their opposition to to changes in in zoning right and for for our listeners out there who do not routinely dork out on uh, urban planning discussions or concepts <laughs> far stands for floor to area ratio it is really gonna just kind of give you a sense of how tall you can build something on a plot of land and there's a really fascinating discussion about FAR happening right now in the city of Culver City. Should it be mm. 0.6? It, the city just reduced it to 0.45 from 0.6 for R1 neighborhoods. Uh, and I think uh, California Yimby or Yimby Law is threatening to sue them about it. It's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Mike, you you say you say this like the listeners aren't listening to a podcast about housing research. <laughs> so. Uh, Good, good to clarify regardless, but I suspect most are already in the know. Um, I hope we have a general <laughs> audience. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. Generally there. interesting. And so there's more to this paper. We, we've only covered some of it actually so far. And the next part is looking at not just opposition to or support for housing in people's own neighborhoods, but somewhere else. Um, so like the, the real... NIMBY, not in my backyard, like I support it somewhere else, but not here kind of view. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit about what, how that changed things when you moved the project from in their neighborhood to maybe a mile or two away? Right. Yeah. No. So I, I think that was like, I was maybe not surprised by the numbers, but other people have told me it was, it was an important finding just because there is some kind of, uh, questioning of the idea of nimbyism being, you know, like I like, I want housing to be built somewhere else, but not near me, which I kind of just had assumed to be the case for many people. Um, but yeah, so, you know, of the people, the finding was of the people that, uh, oppose the development propose, you know, the hypothetical development in on their block. Then we later asked them about an, an identical development, you know, several blocks away or farther, farther away. And of those people, they, so they opposed to the first one near them. Then in the next one, 23% of them actually liked it. They supported it somewhere else. And another 21% of them had no opinion on it happening somewhere else. So nearly half the people that opposed uh, the housing near them were okay with it somewhere else, which was a pretty interesting finding. And so you're getting at like, are people just, they oppose it in their neighborhoods, but they actually are okay with it elsewhere or so that's the NIMBY position, or is it the the banana, the build absolutely nothing anywhere <laughs> near anyone position? Yeah, so half half of the people are consistently banana. They don't <laughs> want it near them. They don't want it anywhere. <laughs> I mean, something to be said for consistency. Yeah, no, I, I like them better almost. And the last thing you looked at was how community benefits could mitigate some of the opposition. And you gave the survey takers a few different messages about how those benefits were secured. You didn't really say like what they were. Um, Mm -hmm. It was more about how they came about. And so Mm -hmm. one said that the developers proposed them voluntarily. Another said they were forced by the community, like through negotiation. And then the third said that they were required as a matter of course by the city and you added at great expense to the developer. And so you found that almost two thirds of respondents became more supportive after hearing that the developer offered the benefits voluntarily. And that Mm -hmm. fell to 57% increasing their support when it was negotiated. And then it was 50% more supportive when the city required them. And actually for all of these cases, there was like three to 5% of people who actually became less supportive <laughs> when, when they were told about community benefits. So presumably those were like developers or something. Um, but I think that was surprising. And, yeah. you know, we've been doing a lot of work on the approval process in our own research and looking at like by right approvals versus discretionary approvals by yeah. right being like, if you meet the requirements of zoning and building code and everything, you just get to, you get approved and there's no real negotiation there. Right. Um, versus discretionary where there's a lot of more veto points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was honestly, it was a little disappointing for me to see this result because the, the, the message where it was just like required as a matter of course, which would be basically a by right approval um, with community benefits as a part of that, um, that had the least support, like it improved support the least. Yeah. So like, what yeah. did you kind of ta- have the same takeaway from that or? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think the the having more experience since I've done this with talking about specific projects with community members. Um, I think the voluntary the the fact that like voluntary contributions on behalf of the developer made people more likely to increase support isn't surprising. I think I've I hear a lot that people like nice developers, right? Or at least perceive nice develop like it, that really does influence mm-hmm. uh, their opinion, right? I think because maybe it's connected to this like they're coming into where I live to, to do a project. So I 
want to make sure they're nice. Um, and then the losing money is surprising, like given that uh, the fact that they made money made people so much more likely to oppose a project. Um, the fact that they're made to lose money, not kind of increasing support very much um, was was interesting. So people, people don't want them to make money, but they also don't want to hurt them. <laughs> Can't make their minds up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how it affects kind of, I hadn't thought about it in the context of, of discretion or non-discretion, but yeah, I mean, it may be, you know, th- just this in the reframing of, of what the development process is that we sort of talked about before, kind of what the city's role is and what the developer's role is in this process. You know, you could imagine a discretionary process that also includes the developer having to do something voluntarily or <laughs> apparently voluntarily to, to like a make the neighbors like them um, they're mandated to come up with like something <laughs> but they you're get to forced choose. to do yeah something spontaneous for the neighborhood yeah i mean it sounds silly but i wouldn't be surprised if it kind of worked <laughs> i'm gonna ask uh well I'll, I'll ask one more and then um we're gonna be kind of coming to the end but so you surveyed la county residents for this and it's possible that a message that's effective in la county might not be as effective other places or it might be more effective Mm-hmm. Um, do you, again, like asking you to guess a little bit and I apologize as an academic for doing that, but like, do you have a sense for how things might look elsewhere? And I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the, the Hankinson paper from, um, I think 2018, where he found that in higher cost cities, renters tend to develop more NIMBY attitudes versus mm-hmm. like more middle tier and lower cost places where they're a lot more pro housing, even in their own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it is a it is a pet peeve of mine when people take uh, studies that were done in one city and then extrapolate the findings to other cities um, because cities are different, uh, especially in terms of their housing markets. So, yeah, I think that definitely, it inf- you know, the context influences these results for sure. And especially kind of that Measure S campaign that we mentioned, having maybe primed some of the respondents if they had seen those big billboards or heard about the fight or heard about kind of allegations of, of developers in city hall, um, you know, that might've primed them to answer in the way they did. So, you know, it might be less of a big deal in other places. There's no way to know without doing surveys there as well. So I guess I should clarify when exactly was the survey done? Was it like during the campaign or afterwards? It was or? afterwards. Okay, it was okay. a, it was, I think it was a couple months after. But shortly so afterward. A, yeah. Got yeah. It. But yeah, I mean, no, we'd love to do and do similar surveys in other places um, just to get at that variation. Yeah, I'm, you know, and if I could, again, I uh, maybe I can push back on some of your modesty. You know, I think that we do want to be cautious when generalizing to other markets, other cities, other conditions. Um, you know, sometimes that's the best we have, or sometimes you can also make pretty good arguments that particularly within the United States, there's a, there's a particular culture with respect to zoning and land use and single family zoning in particular. There's a, there's a particular, there's also, there are things that, that we share as in terms of planning, you know, concepts and, you know, that, that are not obviously identical from Cleveland to Seattle to New York, but there are, they, we do share a lot of similarities. Yeah. No, I mean, the, and the, the evil developer trope that we talk about and give links to the, to the website about is definitely, you know, that's, 
that's the whole country since the 80s right i mean i think that uh, right and maybe it's maybe it would be even more dramatic now considering that the president is an evil developer and so many people <laughs> hate him Maybe an interesting motto that I just came up with I'm workshopping with our audience is greed is good, but not in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and I think you can, you know, New York definitely has a, a lot of famous evil developers that I'm sure people are primed to, to dislike them getting rich. Is there anything we missed in your paper? Well, some, something we do touch on a little bit is kind of among the planning literature and how uh, planners have written about developers. I think, you know, so there's this issue of kind of how the public perceives city hall and development and developers and the relationship between them. But among city planners, I think there is like a detectable antagonism to developers um, in the academic literature and, and perhaps among practitioners, although I don't have evidence of that. You know, and it's interesting, and especially in the Rena fights in Southern California, kind of this mantra of like cities don't build housing, develop, you know, developers build housing and kind of the city's responsibility is to, to do the zoning and then argue with developers when they propose projects. Um, I think that's something that, you know, we don't really dwell on what to do about it or kind of how to study it further. But I think thinking about how we need to reframe that relationship maybe and think about how city planners and developers you know, have to work together. So what can we do to make it a, a relationship that is less <laughs> repugnant to, to the populace um, mm -hmm. and kind of a more effective and productive relationship that, that builds housing for people? And we could put in another explanatory comma there with Arena. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> Which is Maybe, the, I don't know if we the, have time. <laughs> no, yeah. The Regional Housing Needs Assessment. I don't even know how to define that thing, man. It's confusing. It's basically the state telling us every city how much housing they need to plan for over the next eight years. Right. Um, and it has a nice little acronym called RENA, R-H-N-A. But I mean, I think, you know, in that, in that, pro, you know, the state law says cities are responsible to provide some zoning with, that allows housing to be built and that's it. And then cities kind of can comply with the law, but actually not allow any housing to be built. And it's like a fundamental problem with the way California has dealt with housing, you know, increasingly over the last few decades. Um, but it does go at this this kind of, you know, we can do whatever we want to, to extract money from developers and, you know, block them and make the process more difficult without really recognizing that the negative impacts of a housing shortage are real and hurt renters uh, at the same time that they make most elected officials rich because they're all homeowners. <laughs> and since we want to keep these podcast episodes coming, is there a paper out there that you'd recommend for us to, to look into in the future or something can be related to what you did here or, or unrelated? doesn't matter. Good question. Uh, I mean, related, the one reference that we include, people might be curious about this study and thinking about framing of housing development. Um, Tiffany Manuel at Enterprise did a cool kind of resource pack about framing I think it's specific to affordable housing production, but it applies to, to market rate housing production well in terms of, as well in terms of kind of framing from the developer's perspective uh, projects to people. I, I like that resource a lot. And then the two papers, and Andrew Whitmore and Todd Bendor did some similar work on framing um, around density, more about pro positive frames and how they impact attitudes towards density. So those are nice papers. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of new work, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there about the impacts of housing development on rents nearby. 
Professor Lenz has interesting work on evictions. I'd like to hear a podcast about that. That's what comes to mind. I'm sure we will go down that rabbit hole soon. <laughs> and where can our listeners go to read more about your work? I don't have a, I mean, the Luskin website. I don't know if it has updated. <laughs> Google Scholar. Uh, Luskin.ucla.edu. Yeah. Also check us out at the UCLA Lewis Center. Oh yeah, that, that, has, that has a lot of good policy briefs. So I highly recommend it. We'll just uh You can follow Pavo Makin <laughs> on Twitter at L Pavo. That's at E L P A A V O. The Turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our Spanish speaking audience will recognize that it sounds a lot like the Turkey. And we'll uh you know, we'll just do something like uh, have some show notes and put your C V in there just for fun. People will love to read that. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for today's episode of the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. Thank you for joining us. We have links for our guests in the show notes, and you can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter at UCLA Lewis Center. You can also follow Lens and I at MC underscore Lens and at Shane D. Phillips. And if you like what you hear, please help other podcast listeners discover us by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you soon.